Ever since the space age began in the 1950s, man-made objects have been filling the nighttime sky in an increasing number. But what happens to all those rockets and components floating around our world? Though some burn up in re-entry, an ever-growing number of artificial objects litter the stratosphere, presenting potential dangers to astronauts and costly damages to satellites and spacecraft. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese. And in this episode of If When, I explored the topic of orbital debris with Dr. Philip Ansmetter, orbital debris principal scientist, Jacobs Jets Contract Group. In the discussion that follows, we talked about the size and scope of the problem of orbital debris, the safety hazards it presents, and what is being done to remediate the problem. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a really fascinating topic, this, this topic of orbital debris, and I'm really looking to diving into it with you. So thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to start us off, can you just tell us a little bit, you know, basically what is orbital debris? In the simplest sense, it's, it's anything that has ceased to have provided a, a useful function. So in that sense, if we're talking about the rockets that we use to launch spacecraft, essentially after they separate from the payload, they are now debris. And in some cases, they're Greyhound bus sized debris. In other cases, they're smaller. Mm -hmm. If there were uh, straps or radiator covers or lens covers or things like that, those mm -hmm. are now debris once they separate. And finally, spacecraft as they you know reach their end of mission and become derelict and such those become orbital debris as well in fact the oldest thing in earth orbit right now satellite catalog object number five is an early u.s spacecraft that's been there since 1959 i believe and it's going to be there for probably thousands of years more yeah is it like a mercury capsule or what is it no, it was one of the early uh, Explorer series flights or, or vanguards, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. So orbital debris, though, to kind of get a, a sense of the scope of the problem, it's not just spacecraft, though, right? I mean, is it like satellite Correct. parts? And I mean, when you think about like all the things that we're constantly launching into space, telecommunications, satellites, and this and that, I mean, is is it... Can you speak to the, the size and scope of the problem? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there in the sense that, you know, these, all of the, the objects I've named so far are essentially intact, mm -hmm. right? They may have expended fuel or, or things like that, but they're essentially in one piece, the same piece that, that was launched initially. Mm -hmm. Kind of more pernicious is fragmentation debris. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really kind of, where I've devoted a lot of my career to studying. And, mm. you know, all, all good things have wiring diagrams or flow charts associated with them. So in the case of fragmentation debris, you can really talk about breakup debris, which is where things explode or collide. Mm -hmm. And then what, what we term anomalous debris, because it's produced, we don't understand really the production mechanism of it, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it's, it's there. And so like with this, with this stuff floating around, I mean, it kind of seems like, you know, so you put satellites up there, you know, for the functioning of, particularly in the digital world, you know, how, I, I'm curious, it's like with all that debris, how we keep it from interfering with things that we want to be in orbit versus 
you know, all this just space junk, uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, exactly. And that's an excellent question because, you know, one thing that is motivated by your question is, well, how do, how do we keep track of these things? How do we know mm-hmm. how much stuff there is? And of course, you know, there, there are the obvious answers of, well, we know the big pieces because we launch them there. Mm-hmm. You can even see them at night traveling through the night sky. Mm-hmm. What people thought in 1957 was Sputnik was actually the much, much larger Sputnik rocket body that went streaking through the skies and mm-hmm. garnering all the press attention there. So the very first thing that most people saw in the space age was actually a discarded rocket body, a, a piece of debris. Mm-hmm. As you recall, there was the Cold War at that time, and mm-hmm. people were very concerned about an exchange of ICBMs. And so the U.S. Department of Defense established a more or less worldwide network of sensors. So these are radars and optical sites mm-hmm. and such. And they kept track of what was there. And that goes into, you know, even today, the, the wonderful satellite catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, that DOD still maintains and, and provides uh, on a regular basis. And, you know, that was not their original intent to, mm-hmm. you know, support orbital debris scientists such as myself, but rather they needed to know what was there mm-hmm. in order to identify things that shouldn't be there. So things on circular orbits, good. Mm-hmm. Things on ballistic orbits, maybe headed towards DC, bad. Yeah. So. The, the catalog was the background against which they screened everything, and it mm. kind of has attained now a life of its own. Mm. And so with that catalog, with those radar sensors, mm-hmm. we can essentially see things that are larger than about 10 centimeters in size or about four inches. Wow. So softball size mm-hmm. and larger. Just to put this in perspective for the audience, uh, at the current time, 1 February, there are slightly over 25,000 objects in the catalog. And so, again, larger than softball size and lower orbit. And because of physics, that, that grows to something about the, the size of a, a beach ball by the time we get to geosynchronous orbit. Mm. All good. However, there are things below the size threshold of the catalog. And cataloging itself is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So how do we know this? Well, we know from experiments conducted on the ground that things exploding or suffering an impact follow what's called a grinding law or to be more technical a power law mm-hmm. type relationship between number and size mm-hmm. so what that means for us on a practical basis is we have a lot more small things than we have large things and that's relevant here because remember that 25,000 objects in the catalog if we go down to a centimeter in size or about the size of a, a marble Mm-hmm. Then we estimate, based on models, that there are about 500,000 of those in orbit. And if we go down to about a millimeter in size, so grain of sand, you know, something of that size, mm-hmm. then we estimate that there's somewhere around 100 million of those objects. And unfortunately, things on the order of a millimeter in size are still sufficiently dangerous to pose significant risk or even into mission risk to spacecraft on orbit and then mm-hmm. certainly astronauts and cosmonauts on EVA. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I seem to remember. I, I'm trying to remember, but I, I think that Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity, I think they actually show that where it's like these tiny little objects because of, I want to say hypervelocity, because they're moving so quickly, become very dangerous, these tiny objects. Is that right? That That is correct. And that was kind of a significantly accelerated version of what people have come to call the Kessler syndrome. Mm-hmm essentially a runaway condition in which the existing history leads to runaway growth. That is more things being produced than say the earth's atmosphere can remove. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it's a chain reaction. So you're, you're exactly right. Now, the good thing for us mm-hmm. is that the, the situation, you know, portrayed in gravity mm-hmm. is far in the future. If, if ever, and we can certainly do things to remedy that before it would ever get to, something that dramatic let's say Mm, okay i'm assuming it wasn't like in 1957 maybe even the early 60s we weren't necessarily thinking of orbital debris as much of a problem i mean as long as the russians weren't you know launching icbms at us (laughs) correct you know it's like okay hey you know this module that you know we weren't necessarily categorizing it as a problem but then at some point it seems like there must have been a, a you know a moment where we start scientists started paying attention saying you know we've got a lot of stuff up there it's starting to become a problem kind of when was that and then um you know has it kind of accelerated especially now you know with the advent of all this technology that we're dependent on like kind of walk us through a little bit of like when it okay. it really be, it okay. kind of get on our radar well you know <laughs> good word choice there <laughs> You know, to to really tell the story properly, I have to introduce you to a young man named Don Kessler. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, he'd done his time in the Army. He went to University of Houston, got his B.S. in physics and joined NASA Mm -hmm. in the mid-60s. And, you know, with with going to the moon and such, it has long been recognized that there are things zipping through outer space in the sense that we see shooting stars at a rate of about six per hour. Those are about the size of a green pea, and we see them burn in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So obviously there were things in space. And so NASA decided that the Apollo spacecraft and others needed protection mm-hmm. from it. So he joined an office that specialized in that. And they had guns. They could shoot things really fast and mm-hmm. look at the corresponding damage. And they kind of pioneered the concept of protection or shielding of spacecraft from these things. They developed a computer model, and as their task was done, they were awarded with the office shutting down. You know, the product delivered, you're done. Thank you very much for your efforts. Um, Go find another job. And Mm -hmm. and so Don went into mission control, and he stayed there a few years. And he he was learning about what what is on orbit, just like, you know, we're uh, discussing today. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that, oddly enough, when he looked at the satellite catalog of some rather well-known launches, such as U.S. Landsat spacecraft, a great Earth observer, mm-hmm. you had the payload, Landsat, check. You mm-hmm. had the rocket body, Delta, check. But then it said that there were, you know, 173 associated pieces. Wow. And at, at least at that time, no one was launching 173 or 174 Mm-hmm. objects at the same time. So what were these things? He discovered that those pieces were associated with these breakup events that I had mentioned previously. In this case, the delta is, is powered by what are termed hypergolic propellants that explode on contact. 
through either just the space environment weathering and the flip-flops and in, in temperature, you know, mm-hmm. essentially reversing the common bulkhead between those two things. Mm-hmm. Crack develops. Things that explode on contact came into contact, and you had a really inefficient but nonetheless uh, energetic event that created these mm-hmm. extra 173 pieces. And so that that started kind of a, an inquiry as to was that a, a singular event or did it happen a lot? And the answer was it happened a lot. And in fact, he then spoke with McDonnell Douglas, the manufacturer of the Delta. Mm-hmm. They did some research as to residual propellants on board these things. And they discovered that, yes, indeed, these things featured a lot of fuel and oxidizer, again, exploding on contact, mm-hmm. that were left on board after the, the Delta had successfully deployed its payload. So that really initiated a series of studies which resulted in what's termed mitigation. Mm -hmm. So in mitigation, we try to prevent things from happening. I always like to think of uh, a lot of debris-related studies as being very similar to going to your first party Mm -hmm. and kind of the ground rules for attending a party, right? So the first thing is don't make a mess, Mm -hmm. okay? Next thing may be, well, if you made a mess, clean it up. And finally, if you made a mess, Take responsibility for it. Don't just stand there and say, I didn't do it. It wasn't my <laughs> fault. But go ahead and, and you know, take ownership mm-hmm. of that process. And that's that's exactly what McDonnell Douglas in concert with, with NASA, mm-hmm. DOD, did at the time. And they introduced these these relatively simple mitigation measures to prevent breakups in the first place. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's now, great. you had ask about mm-hmm how long this has been a problem. So, Mm. you know, essentially the first breakup was in 1961 Mm. and there were subsequent breakups, you know, over time. But one of the things that was noted, if we keep track of these things, is that that rate of increase was much larger than the rate of increase of of payloads or rockets or or things like that. So after 1961, it Mm. became the majority component of the population Mm -hmm. And it was increasing faster than the general population, the attack population, so to speak. So remember Don, he was looking at all these numbers of things being produced Mm -hmm. and spoke with McDonnell Douglas. They introduced some some relatively simple mitigation strategies. And, you know, kind of by the mid 80s, those really started to pay off. Mm -hmm. The number of breakups decreased. Mm -hmm. As a result, it put a kink in that slope. So you weren't creating these objects as fast anymore, and you kind of started to to level off in that debris production. Mm-hmm. It seemed great for a time. And I, I've kind of, uh, at least personally, come to think of this as the age of mitigation, so not making a mess in the first place. Unfortunately, the, the age of mitigation did wonders for, for flattening the curve mm-hmm. in the, the growth rate of debris. However, it has not lasted and the modern age has become dominated by a couple of significant events. And really the first of those was a test of what's called an anti-satellite weapon or an ASAT mm-hmm. conducted by the People's Republic of China against one of their derelict low-Earth orbit weather satellites in January of 2007. That was a very bad day in, in the course of that test. Over 3,500 trackable and cataloged pieces entered the environment. By the way, we're still adding to that tally, Mm -hmm. uh, even today, due to cataloging difficulties and such. 
And the net effect there was in, in one day to essentially add or increase the number of objects on orbit by about a third. Wow. And so this was a, a significant event. And, you know, one could look at it from the standpoint of essentially erasing, you know, the, the previous couple of decades worth of, of good work that, uh, that got mitigation mm-hmm. in place. Since then, in fact, only two years after that, in February of 2009, two intact large objects collided for the first time accidentally. Notably, the, the, the derelict Cosmos 2251, an old Russian comm satellite, collided with the active Iridium-33 communications satellite mm-hmm. in orbit, producing two distinct clouds. Again, in that one day, we added significantly to the cataloged population. Since then, we've had a couple of further events, breakups of rockets and uh, weather satellites owned by the U.S. that uh, in former days would have been treated as major events, but now only a a couple of hundred pieces is much less significant than it was. Unfortunately, things like weapon tests continue. There was an Indian ASAT test conducted a couple of years ago, and more recently, and more damaging to the environment, there was the November 2021 Russian ASAT test where they engaged an old military satellite of theirs and broke it up. You know, this has significantly increased the risk to spacecraft in LEO, including the International Space Station. Mm. You know, and as you're talking, so you used the term iridium, and it made me think, you know, we've been talking about debris. Right, about physical objects, but not necessarily talking about like hazardous materials. And I don't know much about satellite manufacture, admittedly, so I don't know like how much, if any, nuclear material, for instance, gets you know put into a a satellite. But I'm assuming that there are at least there's some chemicals and things like that. Maybe they burn up in the atmosphere. I, you know, I don't know, but uh, I'm just kind of curious if you know if if we're also seeing things like radioactive materials being released in the the upper Earth's atmosphere as a result of these collisions? There are toxic things in space, primarily related to propellants and and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But you raise a good point with the issue of nuclear reactors in space because they have been launched over the course of the space age. The U.S. has launched one, and it is actually a debris producer, anomalous debris producer. But the Soviet Union launched a series of nuclear-powered radar reconnaissance spacecraft, or ROSATs, radar ocean reconnaissance spacecraft, whose goal was to use radar to keep track of, essentially, U.S. Navy carrier battle groups and, mm-hmm. and such. And at their end of life, they would reboost to a disposal orbit, about 800 and 900 kilometers in altitude. And to lengthen the life of the reactor core, which is very dense, they would actually separate it from the remainder of the spacecraft and such. In a sense, that's kicking the can down the road in terms mm. of environmental aspects in space. So we do have these nuclear reactors in the catalog. Mm-hmm. It was also a problem in the sense that they used a open-loop cooling with their liquid metal sodium-potassium coolant. And as the core ejected, so did a bunch of the coolant. Mm. which manifests itself now as little droplets that we can see in various high-power radars. It was questionable from the environmental perspective, at least, while it worked correctly, 
And it was terrible from that same perspective when it did not. And there were at least two known cases where it did not. One, Cosmos 954, that reentered over the Canadian tundra in the northwestern part of Canada and resulted in ground contamination. Another spacecraft in the same series actually burned up in the upper atmosphere, and high-altitude sampling uh, of the atmosphere revealed that it had significantly increased the atmospheric inventory of radionuclides in the upper atmosphere. That was a dangerous system from the get-go, and in a sense, both with the upper atmospheric contamination and then just leaving these radioactive reactor cores on orbit will require you know, a hard look at remediation in the future. Now, I can imagine, you know, as these things are, I don't want to use the word exploding because that might be a little too much, but I mean, as things are breaking apart, each piece is taking on a trajectory of its own, right? So it's, they're, they're moving in these, in space in a, in ways not necessarily intended. And so as, as you're making a mess, I imagine it's getting more and more crowded up there, probably getting more and more dangerous in some regards to space travel, you know, life on the ISS, that sort of thing. Now I understand there's a, you'd introduced me to a term hypervelocity impacts. Can you tell us about hypervelocity impacts in space and how those differ from say, like ammunition-based impacts, I think, like bullets and things, you know, like things zipping around in space and like the danger that they present. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, when we talk about the the types of, of say, Earth-based impacts that you had talked about, you mm-hmm. know, be they bullets or shells or things like that, that's primarily a fracture-driven process. So mm-hmm. by that, I mean, if we look really hard at materials, mm-hmm. like, say, a piece of aluminum and things like that, from my physics professor days, one of my favorite analogs to that is a bunch of tennis balls that are held together with little springs. In a fracture-dominated environment, mm-hmm. you're essentially intruding on those tennis balls and springs, and you're breaking some of the springs if things come off, and you're compressing other ones in the, in the sense that some of the springs have now sprung, mm-hmm. and you've kind of damaged that area of this solid, but kind of stays there, you know, it hangs together, mm-hmm. you know, as I say, some of the springs are damaged, but it's, it's mostly still there, except pieces that, that kind of come off more or less intact. Mm-hmm. In the case of hypervelocity, it's a very different regime in the sense that you come in and you dump in so much energy so quickly mm-hmm. that essentially the tennis balls don't have time to get out of their own way. Essentially, you've set up supersonic shockwave in this material. So a lot of energy, very small space. That shockwave is propagating faster than, in fact, the speed of sound in that material. Wow. Remember, the speed of sound might be conveyed by those little springs that are holding all these tennis balls together. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Well, you know, just kind of like back in introductory physics, when you apply energy to a body, like thermal energy, you tend to start cutting those little springs. And now... If you have a sea of of tennis balls not connected by springs, you essentially have a liquid. Mm -hmm. So that's the key. With a hypervelocity impact, you're essentially melting your way into this body. And you you may have seen some photos of 
a huge aluminum block, say, that was actually impacted by a, a relatively benign seeming little slug of uh, Lexan, clear plastic, mm -hmm. and, and such, at about five to seven kilometers a second, which is actually less than you would reasonably encounter on orbit. And there's a huge crater in that thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, that block is about eight to ten inches thick with this huge crater caused by this benign little piece of clear plastic. So that's the danger of on-orbit collisions. Wow. As I mentioned, you know, five to seven kilometers mm -hmm. per second, which which we can attain reasonably easily on the ground, mm -hmm. is not actually representative of the types of speeds we'd encounter on orbit there because you can actually meet other orbiting things head-on based on orbital parameters. You can actually strike things at up to about 15 kilometers a second, and that, that can cause significant damage. Hmm. So what are some solutions on the problem of orbital debris? Like, you know, can you speak to some of the remediation steps that are being taken for all that stuff up there now? Let me just start off by, uh, again, kind of defining some terms for the audience. And one of mm. those is mitigation, as we've already talked about, and that's mm. not making a, a mess in the first place. Right. The second, though, is, is really touching on your question, and that's the, the concept of remediation. In other words, we're going to remediate or clean up the mess after it's been created in the first place. Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., at least, since about the middle of the last decade, a lot of those efforts have really been aimed more at study and looking at, at techniques and efficiencies and things of that nature. What targets would we go over to have the most benefit long-term to the environment and, and things of that nature. But due to a variety of non-technical issues, that's, that's really the, the state of the art to today. Other folks have also looked at Remediation. The European Space Agency, for example, has a large satellite, ERS-1, mm -hmm. one of the largest they've ever launched, which failed. And they're very concerned about its reentry hazard and such that it poses to the surface of the Earth. And so they've looked at things like harpoons, nets, mm -hmm. things like that to essentially capture it and then guide it into a controlled reentry, say, over the middle of the Pacific or something like that. Mm -hmm. Today, private companies such as Astroscale as just one example. It's a international company uh, started in Japan, but it has European, uh, UK, and US elements as well, mm -hmm. is looking at how does one capture a, a satellite mm -hmm. um, and retrieve it, perhaps attach some sort of deorbit package to it, and then economically go on to the next one and and repeat. Mm -hmm. And you recall I'd mentioned non-technical aspects of these things. And those are really two. One is the economics mm -hmm. of trying to remediate space, and the other deals with diplomacy and mm -hmm. the political aspects of who owns who, or I should say who owns what in space, mm -hmm. and who do these things belong to even today even in some cases 50 years after it's broke up, mm -hmm. well, under the, the terms of the Outer Space Treaty from the 1960s, those objects still belong to the launch agency. Mm -hmm. So they constitute sovereign territory, and of course you can't just 
go remediating someone else's national property in that sense. Hmm. Very interesting. I hope I hope some of those countries are out there listening to uh, <laughs> about about the Apollo spacecraft. So let me ask you. Uh, you know, I understand also that orbital debris can also present hazard to us on Earth. Are, how are those potential hazards identified and evaluated? Yeah, that, and that's something that really entered the consciousness, I think, for a lot of folks back in, gosh, I guess the late 70s when Skylab reentered over mm-hmm. Australia. It had a lot of heavy things on board, for example, a film safe that was used to protect film from cosmic rays. And that landed essentially intact. We've also seen that with other large spacecraft and space stations and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, and so it became clear that orbital debris is not just an orbital problem, but rather it can reenter the Earth's atmosphere in an uncontrolled fashion, land on the ground, and either the pieces that survive, or at least in one case, the concern over a fuel tank that would have survived to the ground and had toxic propellants in it mm. has posed some risk to the uh, ground population. And in fact, some of the tools that Jacobs and our consortium teammates under the JETS contract here at JSC mm-hmm. have facilitated the development of look exactly at that. Mm-hmm. So essentially they begin with a model of the spacecraft of the materials identified, what materials burn up, uh, in the upper atmosphere, which survive down to lower altitudes or can even strike the ground. And one of the outputs of that effort is what's termed the casualty area. And kind of the, the casualty probability associated with it, for, for example, in the last century, due to mankind's activities, humankind's activities, it was noted that about 15 joules, where joule is just, of course, the metric, unit of energy Mm -hmm. is kind of the threshold for for casualty and such. And so our models can use that as a threshold. It can look at the population density on the surface of the Earth, of course, 70% water, but certainly there are many population concentrations. For example, the Ganges Valley of northern India Mm -hmm. is the most densely populated spot on Earth. Mm. And then we can essentially fly our reentering spacecraft over the Earth. We can update it with new orbital measurements from that space surveillance network and such, and we can then estimate the risk that's posed to the ground population by these reentering objects. Hmm. Also, we can help out space designers from the get-go because Mm -hmm. we can make recommendations of not using materials that will survive reentry, but rather there's, there's a whole design paradigm now. It's called Design for Demise, and it's exactly what it sounds like. If you can design your spacecraft to fulfill its function, maybe using modern materials such as composites and things like that, that will demise on reentry, absolutely fantastic. And it can become a design goal. It sounds pretty innovative. Is that widely adopted, or is it, you know, is it still kind of in the early days of adoption? Like, how would you how do you characterize that? And are there other innovative solutions that are emerging on the landscape that are, are being explored? Yeah, Design for Demise kind of first came to prominence, again, kind of the middle part of the last decade. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's certainly easier to integrate those sorts of design paradigms into uh, smaller spacecraft, you know, starting with CubeSats and, and things like that, working up to mini-sats and, mm -hmm. and such. Unfortunately, there are a lot of legacy designs out there, both for spacecraft and rocket bodies. So for the time being, we'll, you know, remain faced with the, the entries of, of these large bodies and, and the attendant risk. Mm. I think you had also mentioned or, or asked about what other sorts of technologies are out there and mm -hmm. kind of exciting technology right now that hints at remediation mm -hmm. is the flight of several spacecraft to the geosynchronous belt in uh, Earth orbit. And their goal is to extend the lifetimes of older communication satellites mm -hmm. um, in this case. And then when they've essentially reached the, the real end of their life, when, you know, parts are starting to fail and, and such, to deposit them in what's termed the graveyard orbit located above the geosynchronous ring. There have been several instances of that. And just last week, a Chinese spacecraft, SJ-21, mm -hmm. was noted to have grasped an old navigation, Chinese navigation satellite called Beidou or Compass and such, and it actually tugged it out of uh, hmm. the geo belt where it was a derelict and moved it above geo. So hmm. those are examples of how remediation would work mm -hmm. in, in terms of, of moving it up out of the geosync belt. In low Earth orbit, they would probably, as I mentioned earlier, attach some sort of package to it to, to help make it re-enter quicker. Now there's a problem there mm -hmm. because that sort of technology is what you might term dual use in the sense that it can be used for great environmental and economic purposes, mm -hmm. or it could be used for more nefarious purposes, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the drivers for a, a certain hesitancy to deploy these sorts of things on orbit. And of course, as I, I mentioned, mm -hmm. that's where people start taking a really hard look at things like the Outer Space Treaty and all of the rights and responsibilities that are bound up in that in terms of ownership and those sorts of property rights in space, let's say. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very interesting because you have all these satellites up there that run communication systems and all kinds of things and people aren't being diligent. Who's to say there's some bad actors that are like taking perfectly good satellites or you know perfectly good technology and uh, appropriating it inappropriately, which kind of leads me to my last question uh, or set of questions, and it's and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but it, what else needs to be done that so far hasn't been done to address the problem, and what are the barriers that are impacting the rollout of those solutions? It sounds like maybe some space treaty, you know, action, international trust, some of that kind of thing, but you know, what what are the barriers to, and what needs to be done? That's a very interesting question in the sense that we can break those those barriers out into mm -hmm. a couple of different types. And so we have the technological barriers. And there we can look at the sorts of techniques that could be used for remediation of the environment in the future, be they, uh, you know, a robot arm, so to speak, or mm -hmm. a, a proximity operations docking capability with objects. At the same time, other sorts of techniques may prove feasible. For example, lasers. 
Now, <laughs> this also is a, a dual-use technology. It's very easy to imagine a, something like a ground-based laser or a space-based laser mm -hmm. hitting a satellite with its beam and melting parts of it, knocking parts of it off, things like that. For that reason, kind of the community interested in, in lasers as a means of remediation have kind of gone back to their, their drawing board and, and looked at things such as power levels. And so they've developed some lasers and, and techniques which could, in essence, apply essentially the same sort of radiation pressure, the push that the photons give as they reflect off a surface, mm -hmm. as you would expect just from the sun. So if you imagine this object would pass over the ground-based laser, it would receive this gentle push from the laser. And over time, that would perturb its orbit such that its perigee, or point of closest approach to the Earth, may mm -hmm. dip down further and further into the Earth's atmosphere, it would enhance the drag. And so, you know, far from being, you know, a kazap sort of solution where, where the satellite disintegrates, uh -huh. you know, this would be more of a, a, a medium-term solution where, you know, after these gentle pushes, maybe in five years, the thing would, would re-enter. So there's a lot of interest in developing those sorts of technical solutions. Hmm. The next part are the liabilities. Mm -hmm. and such associated with doing some sort of remediation because let's suppose that your your chosen tool of remediation is a harpoon mm -hmm. okay what could possibly go wrong well some of the things that could possibly go wrong are vessels that still maintain pressures of for example hypergolic propellants or other sorts of pressurants that are common on on many uh spacecraft and rocket bodies and such and what would happen if your harpoon accidentally struck one of those well that would not be a good day and so just as doctors may have the credo of do no harm well we should probably do no harm to the on-orbit environment in trying to make it better mm -hmm. kind of the last challenge or direction of, of development that needs to be considered is that dealing with the diplomatic or international relations realm and how do we behave in space? Mm -hmm. You know, things like rules of the road or a common set of behavioral norms is something that's appeared with increasing frequency over the course of the last couple of years. One of the other terms you'll hear used a lot is the concept of space as a domain. And in this sense, that was one of the rationales for when we stood up the U.S. Space Force, because it was responding to perceived needs in a domain, and that domain just happens to be space. In that sense, it is equivalent to, say, the terrestrial domain with the Army and the Marines, mm -hmm. the maritime domain with Navy and Coast Guard, and the atmospheric domain with the Air Force and such. So it's kind of an interesting take on the environment, mm -hmm. kind of segueing perhaps from a, a late 50s, early 60s view of space as this infinite space that the starships of science fiction go zipping through mm -hmm. to very much more of a populated space and a finite resource. And that, that's, that's very true, both for some orbits now in low Earth orbit, in other words, top of atmosphere up to about 2,000 kilometers altitude, as well as the geosynchronous belt. Mm -hmm. Overall, kind of the, the mental shift Mm -hmm. is every bit as important as some of the technological aspects that we've talked about today.
Oh, that's pretty fascinating. I think, yeah, with that mental shift, the people will recognize the, you know, the problems attendant to orbital debris. And then, yeah, you know, there'll be greater emphasis and, and hopefully greater resources applied to that and, uh, and the mitigating and, and remediating those. So, well, Philip, I really appreciate it. This has been very fascinating. And yeah, I mean, you've really painted a picture for me and for our audience. I really appreciate all the information and I appreciate your time today. Hey, my pleasure, Paul.